Hey, everybody. Good afternoon. Great to see you, and you're still alive and kind of, sort of well. This late in the day, your brain must just be something like that. So happy to be with you. So much love for you, for the movement that you're a part of, for the island that you call home, which is so similar and so different. I just had a run on the lunch break, and I was running down around the castle, which was incredible, and then across the road, and this kind person was gracious enough to let me pass, and I gave them the peace sign, but I forgot there's a way you do the peace sign, and they looked less than well-loved by me, and I thought, what is this? Where is that? Uh, so hopefully we will not repeat something like that over the next hour of our time together. If so, go easy on me. We were related a long time ago. All right. Um, it's really wonderful to be with you, and I was asked just to give a short lecture around my most recent book, which is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Let me just give you a little of backstory and then hopefully get done in time to field a few questions. Happy to chat with you for as long as you are around. Dallas Willard, who was a philosopher from the University of Southern California, as well as an avid apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth and really teacher and writer, once called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day and said, quote, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. He said that to a mentee of his by the name of John Ortberg, who is another one of my favorite writers. And when John first told me Willard's thesis that hurry is the great enemy, the threat, the challenge of spirituality, in particular Christian spirituality, in our day and age, I kind of had two equal and opposite reactions. My mind, in all honesty, thought, that is ridiculous. Re hurry? Like, that's the number one threat? Like many of you, I live in a very secular, very post-Christian, very far-left city. And if you were to ask me, what's the great challenge you face in following Jesus or as a pastor at a church in a city like Portland, Oregon, what is it? I don't know what I would have said, something about the election of Donald Trump or partisan politics or, um, you know, I mean, who knows? Or the, all the questions around human sexuality and gender or progressive theology or income inequality or systemic injustice. I have no idea what I would have said, but I doubt that hurry would have even made it onto my list, much less into the top place. But then at the same time, equal and opposite reaction in my gut, that kind of visceral aspect of my being, I just had this deep res this deep felt yes, this deep resonance with reality. Best kind of metaphor I can think of is a tuning fork. Any of you who play music or play guitar, you think of a tuning fork where you hit this little instrument and it starts to reverberate with middle C or whatever it's tuned to. And if you know anything about music theory, middle C was not created by Bach, it was created by God. It's literally woven into the fabric of reality, and when you hit a tuning fork, your bones, if you're close enough, start to tremor as they come into contact with the reality of the universe that is middle C. And it felt like that at a, I don't know, spiritual, emotional, mental level, there's this deep like resonance with reality. And the longer that I sit with Willard's thesis, that hurry is the great threat to our life with Jesus in our time, the more I agree with it the more I think that hurry is the issue behind so many of the other issues of our day, from chronic anger to outrage culture to social media addiction to low-grade anxiety that never goes away to digital distraction and the breakdown of the family and loneliness and exhaustion and the epidemic of burnout and so on. 
Even Carl Jung, who was not a follower of Jesus, but was the psychologist who coined the language or the framework of introvert, extrovert, and made all of us introverts feel human again, and whose work was the basis for the Myers-Briggs theory of personality, had this little line he used to quip, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. I love that. And you know, I don't know about you, when I hear the, the word or the label of the devil, I don't know what comes to your mind, Will Ferrell on SNL with an electric guitar or whatever. Not vineyard people, you've been okay with the electric guitar for a very long time. You know, or a little demon on a pitchfork, or maybe you have a very sophisticated biblical theology of spirituality and spiritual beings, but I doubt that any of us think of another alert on our phone or another jump on Instagram while you're waiting at the traffic light or another late night email flurry, or another small group Bible study, or another football game, football, right? Soccer, whatever, we don't know anything. But another, another activity on the weekend, or another commitment, or another book club, or another counseling session, or another you fill in the blank in a life of speed. But if you think about it, you know, Corey Ten Boom once said, if the devil can't make you bad or make you sin, he'll make you busy. Fascinating, I mean, and that sounds like kind of like a cute little meme from Instagram, but I mean, Corey Ten Boom, this is the Dutch hero of the Nazi Holocaust, said if the devil can't make you bad, if he can't make you sin, he'll make you busy, and if you think about it, sin and busyness have a very similar effect on the soul. We hear on a regular basis that sin, you know, in the Greek means to, the, to miss the mark. The problem is we import a kind of Western schema onto that of what the mark is. Just step back and think about what is the mark? What is, if sin is missing the mark, what is the mark? What if the mark is union with God? What if it's not a Greek philosophical kind of abstract ethic? What if it's union with God? Well, in that case, sin, not, not to say that busyness and sin are the same thing, but they have a very similar effect in that they cut off your soul, at least its awareness of and its connection to, at any kind of a conscious level, the spirit of God. A number of years ago, we rebuilt our entire church around spiritual formation and all sorts of things I could say about that. But before we kind of put before our church a, a very deep kind of restructure of how we do church, I sat down with a very well-respected PhD psychologist who's also a follower of Jesus, a man I, I very much respect and who's, who's very well known in the academic community. I just wanted to get his take on it. I wanted to get his, him to critique it or confirm it. Um, I was hoping for the latter, but open to either. And just, hey, I, I, wanna, I wanna, here's our working theory of change. Here's how we think human beings or the, the journey of the soul into the image of Jesus and healing and union with God. Um, here's our best synthesis of, of biblical theology and the best of the social sciences would you speak into it. And he, for most of it, he was pretty quiet. He would nod his head, he would offer a little insight here, and he'd say, Freud was totally wrong about this, but here's something you should think about. And he would have a few insights here or there, but he really had very little to say till the very end. And he just said, you know, the number one problem you will face is time. Then he said, people are just too busy to live emotionally healthy and spiritually rich and vibrant lives. After 40 years, as a Christian therapist, that was his experience. The main problem is not a heart that is cold or rebellious. It's not that people aren't smart enough or sophisticated enough. It's not that they don't have adequate book reading recommendations. The main problem is people are just too busy. They don't actually have the time to create space for the soul to enlarge and expand into the kingdom of God. 
Psychologists now diagnose people with hurry sickness, which sounds like a joke. It's actually a thing. Psychology Today defines it as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. The moniker hurry sickness was coined all the way back in the 1950s by Meyer Friedman, who was a cardiologist, actually, not a psychologist, who was the first doctor to theorize the link between heart disease and type A chronic kind of in a hurry, busy people, the kind of you know, Wall Street trader or whoever is more prone or vulnerable to heart disease. And he identified this as a major problem in the 1950s. He defined it as, quote, a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish and or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Again, he said that in the 1950s. Rosemary Sword, who is a time perspective therapist, yes, that is a thing, I want that job. How do I get that? Let me give you my perspective on your time and let me charge you for my time, too. <laughs> Along with psychologist Philip Zimbardo of Stanford, in their book on this subject, offer three symptoms to self-diagnose whether or not you have hurry sickness. Number one, you move from one checkout line to another because it's shorter. <laughs> like, doesn't everybody do that? Two, when you come to a stoplight, you count the cars ahead of you and you change lanes. Except that you're in England, you don't really have any other lanes to change into, but okay. Number three, you multitask to the point that you forget one of the tasks. Now, not to play armchair psychologist, but I'm pretty sure that all of you, myself included, have hurry sickness. And as much as we laugh about it, and that is, I think, the right posture, but the ongoing effect of hurry and busyness and overload on our culture, on our soul and our society is really starting to take its toll. I mean, just think about it. What's the first thing when you ask most people, and in my experience, this is just as true in your country as in mine, the kind of customary, hey, how are you? And what most people say and reply is, oh, I'm good, just what? Busy. Pay attention, and you hear that across all of the lines that are so in vogue in the modern journalistic culture of gender and class and ethnicity and the urban-suburban divide. Everybody I talk to is busy. University students are busy. Teenagers are busy. Empty nesters are busy. People with young kids are busy. Church planters are busy. Retired, everybody I talk to is busy. Now, of course, we need to clarify, um, you know, language is always dangerous because we mean different things. There are different types of busyness. There's a type of busyness that just means you have a lot to do. You're not wasting your life playing Call of Duty till two in the morning every night, but you're giving it away. Your life is generative. It's about what matters. You're giving your life away to Jesus and the kingdom. There's even a healthy sense of urgency in your spirit. By that definition, Jesus himself was busy. You could argue that he was very busy. But there's another far more common type of busyness and far more dangerous, what Ronald Rollheiser, a favorite writer of mine, calls pathological busyness, which is when you have not a lot to do, but you have too much to do. And it was the second kind of busyness that Bill Gates was referring to recently, if you watched that documentary, when he said, busy is the new stupid. Because when you have too much to do, the only solution, other than, of course, to slow down, is to speed up your life to this frenetic pace, to just cram it all in, to speed up your mind and your body and your relationships and your interactions with other people to a pace, a frenetic, insane, fast pace that I would argue is out of step with Jesus and his kingdom. And this has all sorts of implications for both our emotional health and for our spiritual life. 
And Professor Michael Zigarelli conducted a survey of 20,000 Christians, and this was in the US, so forgive the stat here, but I would guess it would be somewhat similar here. And he identified busyness as the major block in most people's relationship to God. Listen to his summary of this 20,000-person survey. Quote, it may be the case that, one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which, two, which leads to, two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. Pastors, by the way, are, are the worst. He rated pastors right up there with doctors and lawyers. Um, not this one, but John and Debbie really struggle with this. Um, <laughs> But it's true. You know, um, I was cut to the heart. If any of you have read Ruth Haley Barton's work, a beautiful writer and teacher on spiritual formation, and I was cut to the heart by her 10 signs that you're moving too fast through life. Number one was irritability. You're just quick to kind of snap at people. And, and when you think about this or self-diagnose, don't imagine how you are with a stranger or somebody from your church, but, but with somebody that you're close to and like your defense mechanisms are down with, your parents, your spouse, your family, if you have one, or a roommate or a really close friend. You're just quick to kind of like get a little snarky or whatever it is. Hypersensitivity takes a, a minor thing to like set you into an emotional funk or throw you off or make you anxious. Restlessness, when we actually do attempt to slow down and rest and take a day to Sabbath or a night off or just be present for the afternoon. We actually can't rest. We have to turn on Netflix or put on music or check our email. We have to go back online or we can't sleep or we have to put a podcast in like because we're just so used to the constant stimulation that when we actually rest, we can't calm down and sleep. Instead, all we feel is even worse anxiety. Compulsive overworking where we just have to answer another email, do another thing, say yes to another project. Emotional numbness, we get to the spot where we can't really feel the full bandwidth or spectrum of human emotion. We're kind of down to the major two of anger and anxiety. And all the ones that have more nuance and life and texture and that really make life worth living are lost. Emotions like wonder and awe and gratitude and transcendence and thoughtfulness and empathy and compassion. Escapist behaviors, just binge watching your Netflix show of choice, The Crown, guilty as charged, whatever it is, until season three. She lost me at season three. I miss Claire Foy. But, um, but whatever it is, it could be TV, it could be social media, it could be church, it could be Bible study, it could be music, it could be another football game for little Johnny, it could be any number of things that are really an attempt to escape from the pain of our life. Disconnected from our identity and calling, if we get too fast, we, we forget who we are and who we're not, what we're called to do and what we're not called to do, and we just get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, and as we'll chat a little bit about tomorrow morning in our session, we end up far more reactive than active in our leadership. Not able to attend to human needs, basic things like sleep. I read recently that before Edison and the light bulb, the average Western European slept 11 hours a night. Can you imagine a life where you're, how was last night? Ah, not great, I only got 10 hours. 
I felt so guilty for so many years, like reading the biographies of the saints, you know, and Wesley or whoever would get up at five in the morning to pray. And I thought, oh, I'm such a slacker. He went to bed at six. Like, <laughs> what else are you gonna do, you lazy bum? Get up and pray for revival, you know? Goodness. Um, <laughs> no, that's not to downplay that, but we lose sight or, or we, we get behind on just basic things like sleeping well and drinking water and cooking our food at home and spending time with people we love and margin and just ba- exercise, basic health. Last was, oh, I'm sorry, second to last was hoarding energy, which is where you like hold back emotionally from people like drama person from your small group comes to you and every small group has a drama person. And if you think yours doesn't, it could be that you are the drama person. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sorry if I can say that as the outsider. Worst case scenario, you don't invite me back. But, um, But comes to you or just a friend in need comes to you or just somebody who has need of time, and you, you hold off because you have to save it. I have a meeting in the morning. I have a thing tomorrow. I just don't have space for it. I have church tonight or whatever, and we hoard our energy. And then finally, and I would argue most important, is this slippage in our spiritual practices, the time that we actually dedicate to slow down and rest in God's love through practices or spiritual disciplines or whatever you wanna call it, often are the first thing to go rather than our first go-to. Now, are we having fun yet? I'm just here to bring guilt and shame from the West Coast of America to all of you. No, not at all. And if that's how you're feeling right now, that is so not my heart, not remotely, no guilt, no shame. The first time I read this, I was like seven for 10, or I thought it was, and then my lovely wife, who's very kind, said, no, honey, 100%, you're 10 for 10. (laughs) The point here, my point is this. There is, when we talk about things like hurry, there is way more at stake than just our emotional health, which is the the kind of filter that a lot of people hear it through. As if that's not enough, but for different people and different personalities that will make, that will sound more or less compelling. But I would argue that our spiritual life itself is at stake. Take a look at this from Ronald Rollheiser. Quote, today a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. What a great line. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It's just that we're habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us, and it's not real, it's a fantasy, than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Now, to clarify what we mean by spiritual lives, that language is really easy, in particular in the church, to sentimentalize, and once it becomes a cliche, it no longer has any mental or emotional traction in our heart. What I mean by spiritual life is our capacity to receive and give love in relationship to God and to others. After all, for Jesus, the telos of the spiritual journey, or put another way, the kind of end goal or the meaning and purpose of life itself was to become the kind of person 
who is pervaded by love from God, for God, and as well as for friend, family, and even for enemy. He made that blatant when on numerous occasions he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, number one, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then he immediately said, and the second is like it, which is always hilarious because the question was, what's the greatest commandment? And he refused to answer it in the singular. It was always in the plural. The commandments are, the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. In the Sermon on the Mount, the apex of his vision of life in the kingdom of God, at the very end, if you follow the flow of thought from beginning to the crescendo, the apex of his ethical, if you want to use that word, or I think a kingdom is a better word, vision, is love not just for family member or for friend or for neighbor, but for your enemy even as well. For Jesus, the whole spiritual journey is about becoming the kind of person who is pervaded by love. And the hard truth is, that hurry is incompatible with love. The late Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama has this beautiful little collection of essays called Three Mile an Hour God, and the title essay, I had to Google it, I'm like, three mile an hour, what does that even mean? Apparently three miles per hour is the speed of walking, unless if you're from London or New York, then it's like 25 miles per hour, but for the rest of us, three miles per hour is the speed of walking, and in it he writes this, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed, it is an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed, it is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is slow, yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. And man, don't we see this on display in the life of Jesus? One of the first things you notice when you're reading any of the four gospels is that Jesus was rarely, if ever, in a hurry. Willard was once asked to describe Jesus in one word, and he thought about it for a minute, and you know what he said? He said, relaxed. Isn't that great? He was also from Southern California, so you know maybe there's something in there, but is that the one word? I don't know, I would have said all-powerful or wicked smart, that's two words, smart, brilliant, wise, prophetic, powerful, but, and all of which is true. But man, in his mind, his vision of Jesus from the portrait of the four gospels was relaxed. Is that how you think about Jesus? One of actually the hallmarks of your movement that I find so compelling that goes back to Wimber himself is just that, that absence of frenetic anxiety and weird emotional hype. And what was Wimber's line? We don't hype the spirit up, he comes down. And that, that kind of relaxed SoCal charm that fits so well with British reserve. I don't know how <laughs> those two things came together in this beautiful amalgamation that is so compelling to me. But think about the four gospels and how many of the stories about Jesus, and even the teachings of Jesus are responses to interruptions. I don't have a stat for you, but just for fun sometime, next time you read through the four gospels, just keep a little journal next to you and just tally how many of the stories and teachings and sayings are some kind of off the fly, at least the way that it comes to us in the story, response to an interruption. C.S. Lewis once said something to the effect that how you respond to an interruption is who you really are. Duh, if that doesn't cut to your heart, I don't know what will. Um, or you're just not a parent yet, you know? Um, 
But I'm a parent, I have three lovely children, and let me tell you, and I'm also very high J in the Myers-Briggs, I like to plan everything out in advance and schedule it all, and my children just have no concept of really time in general, much less the idea of a plan, you know? Everybody else is kind enough to email my assistant and ask for a meeting and schedule a time and keep it brief and show up, and my children just barge into my room and start talking, you know? But man, most of parenting, for me at least, is how I respond to interruptions. And much of life is how we respond to interruptions. If you're anything like me, I often respond with hurry or agitation or anger or lack of presence or just like hurry up, get through the point, I have to move on. And I just miss, I can't, I I wonder, I don't even know if we'll ever know and I'm not sure that I could stand it. But in heaven, on the other side, I I wonder if we'll see how many missed moments we had how many times we miss what God could have done if we'd slowed down to offer that prophetic word or pray for healing or offer love or practice hospitality or just sit and listen. I just can't, I don't know that my soul could handle the lifetime of missed moments. Jesus, in his response to interruption after interruption, was so marked by just presence to the moment to the soul in front of him, to, to the Father, what the Father was doing in that soul in front of him to his own spirit, his own inner emotional spiritual state. His response was so marked by wisdom, by compassion, by prophetic power, and above all, by love. And the reality, again, the hard truth is that hurry sabotages both our capacity to receive and to give love. Just a short word on each before we call it a day. First off, to receive love from God himself. Um, I think one of the most important questions we have to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus is if, in his mind, the telos of the spiritual journey is to become a person who's pervaded by love, or if you prefer Mark's language, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, how? How do we become those kinds of people? Not just how do we love, that's actually not the right question. How do we become people who are pervaded by love? for whom the natural byproduct of the interior architecture of our heart and our life of abiding in Jesus is love. Well, my working theory, based on what I can tell from the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, is, and I hate to truncate it down because it's far more complex than this, but I think at its most basic is we let God love us. We don't become loving at a neurobiological level, at a theological level, through hearing about love, through a sermon or reading about love in a book, we become more loving by experiencing love. Ideally, first from our mother and our father, which many of you had that experience and it's such a gift, and many of you did not. And you know that's a healable wound, but it is a wound nonetheless that you live with and wait on for Jesus. We become more loving by experiencing the love of God through the Spirit and through the community of the Spirit. But that takes time. It takes time to let God love us into our best self. For all of the talk about a personal relationship with Jesus in your country and in mine, it's easy to forget that relationships are, are very inefficient when it comes to time. And they're a, they're a pain in the neck. Can we just agree on that? Or is that just the introvert in me, you know? They're a lot of work. They're a lot of time. And they're worth every ounce of it, most of the time. But they are time-consuming. There was a great saying back in the 90s. I think it was from the parenting literature, though I'm not sure, and it was, love is spelled T-I-M-E. It was like the 90s. It was the same time that, you know, what was Wimber's one? Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. I'm like, no, it's not. That's not how you spell faith. Um, I think it was a baby boomer thing. Like, let's convey really good theology through really bad grammar, you know? 
But love is spelled time, you know? And there's, there's truth in that. Anybody in a long-term friendship or marriage or anything like that, you know that you don't get the depth of intimacy without long hours together both of emotional, vulnerable moments and then just kind of shoulder-to-shoulder time in the mundanity of parochial life. To be in an intimate, loving relationship, you have to dedicate a lot of time to each other because relationships are not quick or efficient and you're rarely in control of them. Our relationship with God is no different. The Anglican priest, W.F. Adams, who was C.S. Lewis' spiritual director for many years, once called hurry the death of prayer and said, quote, to walk with Jesus is to walk with a slow, unhurried pace. Again, he said that in the 1940s when he saw hurry as a major threat to prayer. Comes as no surprise that a recent New York Times article called Atheism, the Religion of the Busy. And while Andrew Sullivan, a writer I also follow, said that the great threat to the church in the West isn't hedonism as much as it is distraction. But just as importantly, hurry sabotages our capacity not only to receive love, but also to give it. I don't know about you, but all of my worst moments as a dad, as a husband, as a friend, as a pastor, as a neighbor, just as a human being, are when I am in a hurry when I'm late, in particular as a dad, I know many of you aren't parents yet, but oh goodness, all of my worst moments as a dad are when I'm in a hurry and I'm tired. Get in the car! I mean, I have three children, my wife is like warm culture, wonderful soul, and late for everything. And God bless her and her Latina heritage. Um, but she's late for everything, and my children are just all over the map, and so trying to get anywhere kind of sort of time with my three kids and my lovely wife, and it's like, get in the car, and why your shoes don't match, and wear your socks, it's January, and like, get in that, and oh my gosh, and you're late, and don't do that with the dog right now, get in the car. By the time we get in the car, I'm in a fight with my wife, my child is in tears, and I'm driving to church to teach on slowing down to become a person (laughs) of love, who is pervaded by love as you live in presence to the moment. Get in the car, right now we're late, you know? (laughs) But seriously, I mean, that, of course, that's my experience as a dad. Many of you, that's not your stage of life or, or where you're at. But I think we could agree that many of our worst moments are when we just don't have enough time to fully inhabit the moment. Is it any surprise that in Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, the first descriptor on his list is, quote, love is what? Patient. Number one thing. Another way to translate that is love is unhurried. Because hurry oxidizes our inner sense of compassion. Compassion is a feeling word. It means we slow down long enough to feel what another person is feeling in a kind of solidarity with them at an emotional level and ideally even at a cognitive level to kind of see the world from their point of view. Almost, I mean, all sorts of other studies have been done to show that neurologically being listened to is basically indistinguishable from being loved. When people feel felt, they feel like you attend to them and you listen to them with a compassionate heart, even if at the end of the conversation you say, I disagree with every single thing that you just said, they still will turn and hug you and say, thank you so much, I love you. (laughs) Seriously, and it's not, we think it's cognitive. It's more relational, emotional. Hurry doesn't have time. I think about the great tension in your country this week over Brexit, and I'm an outsider, so I don't even understand what the heck it is, but I'm happy you made up your mind. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
I know it has been quite, because I'm just tired of reading about it and still not understanding it, but, but man, the, how divisive that has been in your nation and even in your church. But man, cognitive stuff aside, legitimate political and socioeconomic opinions aside, what would that have looked like if there was more space to listen with compassion, even if at the end of the day you disagree to literally have that heart posture of I feel you and I hear you and I'm with you. Hurry doesn't have time to listen, it doesn't have time for compassion, it doesn't have time for love. That's why Thomas Merton called hurry a pervasive form of contemporary violence because it kills relationships. It kills compassion, it kills wisdom, it kills the, un- the ability to understand complex things in a globalized world. It kills trust, it kills intimacy, it kills love. So, what to do? Well, the very short answer is read my book. It's for sale for $19.99. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm very much kidding. But the case that I make in the book to give it away and give you no reason to buy it is that hurry, if hurry is the problem, the solution is not more time. On a regular basis, I catch myself saying, I just wish there were five more hours in a day, or I just wish there were three more days in a week. But if you follow the logic of that through, it's absurd, because what would happen? We would just, if the universe were to restructure its shape, or a doctor were to invent a pill where we you know, only needed two hours of sleep a night, what would we do? We would just fill all of that time up with more activity and busyness and commitments and relationships and things and hobbies and side projects and work, and we would be even more exhausted and burned out and grouchy than we are right now. So I would argue that the solution is to slow down and simplify our life around becoming people of love, to both embrace our potential as image bearers of God and also to accept our limitations as image bearers who are made from the dust, and to dust we shall return. And the way you do this is through a rule of life. It's a very simple process. Rule of life um, may be a strange language to you. It's more familiar to those from a Catholic or an Anglican tradition, less familiar to those from an evangelical or charismatic tradition. But it's an ancient idea, not modern. That's why it sounds strange. And you need to note that it's a rule for life, singular, not rules for life, plural. So it's not a list of rules for your life. It's a rule. It's an ancient concept. It goes back at least as far as St. Patrick, but St. Benedict in the sixth century was the one who kind of really made it famous. And And the Latin word that it was based on was regula, and it literally means kind of straight, or it's where we get the word ruler or regulation. But many Greek scholars um, theorized that it was the ancient Latin word for the trellis under a vine in a vineyard. So if you can think in your mind's eye of a winery or wine tasting or something like that, and you imagine underneath the vine, there's, there's this trellis, there's this support structure And the job of the trellis is to create space to get the the vine up off the ground and to kind of index it in a certain direction for it to bear the maximum amount of fruit. Because without a trellis, a vine may die, it may not die, but it will bear a fraction of the fruit that it's capable of, and it will be very vulnerable to wild animals and to disease. And so early theologians said the same is true for us. Jesus made it very clear in John chapter 15, which more and more I think is kind of really a great summary of his entire vision of spiritual formation. Remain in me or abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. That was his word picture, was of a vine, of a vineyard, and of a branch in the vine. Well, early theologians said, all right, let's play with this metaphor. For us to abide in the vine, we need a trellis. We need a support structure. We need what they called a rule of life. And one very simple definition of a rule 
rule of life is a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that create space for you to slow down and receive and give love as you live in alignment with your deepest desires. If you wanna take this talk and go from kind of informational lecture to some actual practices to get you started, you're welcome to visit practicingtheway.org slash unhurry. Um, everything on there is free. It's just a collection of resources, teachings, and practices for myself and our team back in Portland. And we have a workbook there for how to develop your own rule of life, including one for your phone and all of that. So that's optional just if you want to when you get home, chase that down. It's also, by the way, designed for a small group to go through that together, but you can do it on your own or with your partner if you want. Because the reality is we have to get ideas into our muscle memory. We have to go from like lecture or aspirational idea or yes, I wanna slow down, good luck with that, to like an actual, some kind of a rule, and you self-generate it based on your own inner desire, your personality, your stage of life, your preferences, great. Not a right way to do it. But we have to, at some point, let this come into our inner woman or inner man. And if you're anything like me, this will take you years, not hours. I mean, take you hours to kind of figure out a rule of life, or minutes. But man, for me, this is something I've been on a journey toward for over half a decade, and I feel like I'm just starting to slip into what the Quaker writer Thomas Kelly called that unhurried center of peace and of power. So may God grace you wherever you call home, whether you're in a larger city or a small town, whether you're addicted to your phone or don't know how to use it, um, or which we're all a little jealous. We used to mock you and now we're all jealous of you. Um, wherever you're at on the personality spectrum, whatever your stage of life is, whatever your responsibility in life is, may God just give you grace to slow down, I think of Eugene Peterson's language of the unforced rhythms of grace, what he meant by the spiritual disciplines or just life in the way of Jesus. May God just give you grace to slip over into that unhurried center and to live from a place of abiding. That's what really everything comes down to abiding. Everything just at some level comes down to how do I live in connection to and awareness of and just in the flow of the Trinitarian community of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the flow of love and joy and peace. May God do that work in your heart and in your body as he does it in my own. Amen. I think, oh, stop it. I think we have time for some questions, right? We have until a quarter till, am I right? Yes, Tim, great. I'm, I'm normally late, so to be early is a miracle in and of itself. Maybe I was talking too fast, I don't know. I'm so sorry, blame it on jet lag. I'm happy to, um, back home, I live in one of the most anti-authoritarian cities in the world, so we don't talk about question and answer, because that would imply I have answers and there's such a thing as truth. Um, so we talk about, <laughs> questions and response. So I'm happy to respond, have, offer a response. If you have a question or even a thought or an addition or a nuance, love to hear from you. Tim, how does, how does this work? I just have them put up their hand and you, you run the mic around. Question, thought, response, nuance, anything. Tim, you're about to slow down, Tim. Slow <laughs> down. <laughs> uh. That's actually that's a great example. There is a time and a place for hurry. Not very many, but when you're in a large room and somebody has a hand up, that's a decent one. 
in your, in your book, towards the end, you talked about Sabbath, and I hated it. I hated the, <laughs> that chapter, but I could see life in it. How does it, how does it work for... <laughs> Such a classic British welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that hospitality right there. That's, that's great. You're welcome. <laughs> Keep going. I'm how, do, how does it work for a, a busy, busy parent... Someone's working 50, 60 hours a day, uh, a week. Mm. <laughs> how, how, does Sab, how does Sabbath do it? Because I, I read it and I, I take days off, but how do you do Sabbath? Yeah, I mean, um, again, there's not a right answer for that other than I can say I am a busy parent. I have three children and a demanding job, so I feel the pain of that. And um, I would actually flip the question to say, how do you possibly do that without Sabbath? You know, how in the world could you work 50, 60 hours a week and parent without time set aside to sleep and rest and generate, you know? And, you know, you could answer that kind of with all the statistical research that on work productivity that basically shows the myth, you know? So all the, all the research shows that basically after 55 hours a week, productivity plummets. So there's almost no difference in productivity between somebody who works 55 hours a week and somebody who works 90 just hard to fathom, but there's literally almost no difference. And um, there's lots of evidence that the more Sabbath you have, and we'll actually chat about this tomorrow morning, but the more time that you dedicate to rest, the more proficient and productive and focused and disciplined you are in your work, so often the more productive you are. So, I mean, as far as the logistics of it, I don't know your life, I don't know your personality, I can't, I'm, that would be a longer conversation. And I do think there is a kind of ruthlessness that you have to bring to it and a kind of dedication and discipline and pre-commitment where you kind of put a plan in place. So it's not just, ah, this weekend we're gonna try to take it easy, but it's like, no, we have this, we have this time, we have a beginning ritual, an ending ritual, whatever that is. And, um, and uh, I think it's hard, but I do think, it's, I, I do think it is doable. I definitely think it's doable. And what I would encourage you is just, you know, one thing I say to a lot of people is just start where you're at, not where you should be. You know, because if, I don't, again, I don't know you, but I know my personality is I just want to do everything all the way, the best, right away, and that's just a recipe for failure, you know? So if that's overwhelming, then maybe you start with four hours every Saturday morning or four hours Sunday afternoon after church where you just, you put your phone away and you're going to have a meal together and take a nap. It's something really simple and doable, and then kind of inch your way forward from there, you know, as you explore and experiment. And again, my whole thing, there's no legalism for me, there's no guilt trip, there's no even command. I just think it's wisdom and life and blessing, and um, I think there's a real kind of way that God set us up to thrive, you know? So I don't know if that was too ambiguous of an answer, but. Thanks, mate. Hi, thank you so much for a great yeah, talk. You bet. Um, Can I just get your name? If yeah, my name is Emma, Emma Brown. Yeah, great, thanks. Um, so I love the idea of unhurrying, and obviously you've got a growing mission, growing calling. So do you have a framework for saying no? Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that's a great question. You're right to ask it. It's the, so hard. And it's different for every person, you know? And I, I wish I had, I get asked that question a lot, and I wish I had some killer, like, 
thing that rhymed and was super witty and smart and like, here's the three things. Is it da, 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 whatever. But I don't have that. I pray and discern. I, I don't. I could give you some of the generic stuff. Like I love, um, uh, Greg McCown has that book, Essentialism, if you've read that, which is a fun little read. And he has this principle in it. It's a heck yes or no. He doesn't use the word heck, but heck yes or no. Um, meaning like it's either when an opportunity comes or a request comes, it's either heck yes or it's no. Not maybe or kind of, sort of, or do I have time or oh, I feel like maybe I should do that, you know. So, but there's stuff like that, but it's, it's a little generic and vague. I'm probably not helpful. Okay, Sorry. thanks. You should write a book on it. I'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. I'm not picking whoever. I'm just going to let the lovely... Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for... What was your name? Um, it's Ash. Ash, hi. Um, this material is, is great. Uh, I'm very interested in all this kind of stuff. Really um, pleased to hear that I'm not the only one that struggles with the kids <laughs> and rushing somewhere and a family that kind of needs to get somewhere. Please help. What, 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 what do you do like, in that moment when you're trying to get the kids in the car and get somewhere? <laughs> And you need to be there on time, and there's schools about to start, or church or something. What do you do? Uh, how can we do that better? Did I not make it clear that I'm the wrong person to ask? <laughs> I don't know. Catherine, I don't know if she's in the room, but she had a great thing she said to me last night after raising four kids. Uh, she said, this is saying at their work. It's, what was the saying? It's, Catherine, if you're here, you can yell it out. It's easy to be early and hard to be on time. I like I had to think about it, she was smarter than me for a moment. I think what she meant was, it's much easier to just get somewhere early, you know, to aim for being early, than it is to try to be somewhere right on time. That takes a level of finesse that my family does not have, you know? <laughs> um, so that, again, way too vague and generic to be much help. I don't know, May, I'm sorry, I'm working on it. I, I mean, I am, I think for me, it's a holistic thing. So like the way that I view Sabbath, um, and many other practices that are similar to it, is I view it almost like training wheels, you know? So all of the practices of Jesus or the spiritual disciplines, the thing that you have to, because I teach on this a lot, it's, a, it's kind of a part of my body of work, that you have to constantly keep before people and people constantly forget, myself included, is that all of the spiritual disciplines are a means to an end. So the end is not to practice Sabbath. Who cares? The end is to be a person who does his or her work out of a place of restful, abiding, trusting God, who is loving and joyful and full of wisdom and compassion and delight and joy in the kingdom of God. So that's the end. So what I find is that, like one of the first things you notice when you begin to practice Sabbath is that it has an effect on the other six days of your week and you can't like, it was actually, it was really frustrating at first, though now I love it, but you can't like work 90 hours a week and like work till midnight the night before and then at 12.01 be like, Shabbat Shalom and just like <laughs> ease into happy, relaxed, like I'm just in the flow of the spirit, you know? It's a, it's a holistic thing, you know? Walter Brueggemann, who has this beautiful little book on Sabbath, uh, writes, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. So the one is actually about the seven. So um, that's a long way of saying, uh, you know, you could take it from the tactic of just like, how do you get your family on time and try to be 20 minutes early for everything or whatever. But I think from a, from a spirituality perspective and from a spiritual formation perspective, it's more about how do you craft a rule of life 
that has some kind of counter habits to hurry that are built into it based on your personality preferences that really are training wheels to kind of slow you down. So when things get wobbly or you're late or your kids are still not coming down the stairs or wearing mishmash shoes and socks or whatever the thing is, you have something in your muscle memory. And that's really, I mean, I mean, Christian spirituality is far more holistic than most Western Christians, you know, as you, I'm sure, know, want to admit. And so I'm really interested in embodied spirituality, the role, I'm fascinated by neuroscience, and like there's a whole emerging field of scientific inquiry called neurotheology, that is basically looking at the synthesis of theology and neurobiology. And, you know, theologically, we don't have a body, we are a body. And our muscle memory is literally attuned to a pace of life. So through practices, which are embodied, that's why we don't call them spiritual disciplines, we call them practices, because spiritual disciplines, um, first off, if you're a millennial, discipline is anathema, and spiritual people think of like un unembodied, they think it means like immaterial. But the spiritual disciplines are very embodied, like fasting is, is prayer with your stomach, you know? Sabbath is like, not working, it's resting and sleeping with your body. It, it, the Lord's Supper is eating and drinking. These are embodied practices by which a material being has a relationship with an immaterial God, and, that, and these parts of us are integrated, the immaterial and the material. So it's a long way of saying, I think that through spiritual practices, we take theology and ideas, such as becoming a person of love, and the goal is to literally get it into our muscle memory to where it's just, we do it without thinking. It's just quasi-automatic. We just begin to live this kind of more loving, unhurried way. And I don't think that happens in like a couple weeks. I'm not sure how long it takes because I'm still in process. <laughs> but I do, feel, I do feel growth. It feels slow, but I definitely feel growth. So I don't know if that remotely answers your question or I just gave a random sermon. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Next person. Hi. Um, hello, Dania. Left. I don't even know. Hello, hello. Oh, right in the Hi. front. Hi. <laughs> um, my name's Emma. Um, Hi, Emma. I basically, I work with a lot of national places around addiction work. And, Wonderful. you know, we see more and more in this culture that we are almost programmed in that instant gratification that you talked yes. about. Things like, you know, Facebook being made to be addictive. Yep. Um, so I'm not just talking about addiction, I'm talking about habits, compulsive behaviors, yep. all com contributing to that hurry culture we're in. 100%. And I know it's quite, it's more of a reflection really on what you've said, but you know, we, it can be quite a morbid topic because yes. I don't know about everybody, but I know for me and many, this will have hit a nerve. Um, but actually I sort of see what we're living in and the amount of places I'm working in, in the Christian context is that as churches and the church, we have this amazing opportunity to step into the gap now that has been highlighted by yes worry Huge. by busyness by addiction yep. by habits so in, in a way I think it's I just want to celebrate the fact that we actually have this and we can work with it and we should actually be stepping into it I just wanted your comment on that because there's an opportunity and we as a church and I've been with Vineyard now for a year having left another sort of church to come and I love what this culture is about yeah and Vineyard movement has an amazing opportunity to step into that gap yes blows my mind so I'm grateful to be here yes no I mean just nothing but full 100% agreement I think it's one of the main we have thousands of years of practices that aid us to be present to the moment that I think are incredibly 
um, prevalent in our society. You know, so a really strong case can be made that both yoga and mindfulness are not Hindu, they're actually Eastern Orthodox Christian. There's a whole theory that yoga came to India in the fifth century through Nestorian Christians, and that mindfulness is basically a secular version of contemplative prayer. But because we're in a post-Christian society, that's anathema to culture at large. So we're cool with Buddhism, because none of us have been hurt by Buddhism, and it fits great in a secular society because it's a religion without God, though there's lots of wisdom in it. Um, but we're not cool with Christian. We're in the, the kind of teenager rebellious moment against Christianity. So you don't hear that a lot in the public perception, but the craze right now over yoga, over mindfulness, I think are our secular culture is rightful. I mean, I think intuitive image of God, it's not a critic, critique of it, it's a celebration of it, attempt to move back toward a slower embodied presence to the moment. And the reality is we've, we've been doing this stuff for thousands of years. We maybe not meaning like us in the room, um, but our tradition that we're a part of. And if you look at when the church leaned most heavily into rule of life and practices and contemplative prayer, it was always when culture was at its most chaotic. So St. Benedict and the monastic, Western monasticism started at the decline of the Roman Empire. And as the empire was falling apart and into chaos, and you know, I, well, I'll travel around some of Europe in particular and see some of these ancient monasteries that are castles. They have like turrets around the top. And you're like, how far from the gospels of Jesus do you have to get before you put a turret at the top of your church and a moat out in front of it and a prison. We have like welcome people and tea and coffee. You have a moat, you know? <laughs> but it's easy for me to judge, but if you think about like, imagine attempting to carve out a community in you know, Mogadishu or Syria or South Sudan or in a failed state right now where literally you gather together and your body is under duress. You might, you might put bars on the windows at least or a moat or something to keep you safe, you know? So all that to say, Monasticism grew as a healthy counter-response to a culture that was spiraling out of control into anarchy and lawlessness. And I think many people have said that we're in a similar moment to the fifth and sixth century where Western culture, in particular in my country at least, is spinning out of control. And we're devolving into emotional, social, sexual chaos, identity chaos, lack of meaning and purpose in life. Eth you know, ethic, um, like ethical chaos. People don't even know what's right or wrong anymore. And that I think the, the lean for the church now, you know, the move of the spirit, I think, is always counter to the move of the world. So if the, the world is a move toward unbridled individualistic expression and spontaneity and freedom, then likely the spirit is gonna be a move toward discipline, order, quiet, peace. So I think if we wanna be in the flow of the spirit, we have to think about how do we take a healthy, non-aggressive stand against kind of the inertia of crucial. And I love that you mentioned technology because I think you have to think about technology, you know? So it's a long way of saying I agree. That's what you get when you're a preacher for a living. I'm so sorry. This lovely lady here has been... Hello. <laughs> sorry, I'm not her, but I'm here. Wave at me. I'm no hey. Yes, great. Hi. Hi. Um, my name's Georgia. Hi, and Georgia. Hi. I have a question about how do you thrive or survive, I don't know which one, um, when you're working in an environment that doesn't celebrate, like, or doesn't value rest, Yes. when it actually, like, um, there's an expectation that you're going to be spending all of yourself, but you don't have capacity for it. Um, I know that I really 
what I re- really resonated with was um, the hoarding time. Yes. Like as soon as, soon as I get into that conflict, I then want to um, count the seconds of the day and be like, I will give this to you, but not that. Like, how do you do it without being legalistic? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Again, it's hard not knowing what your job, can I, do you mind, well, maybe I shouldn't. I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor. Great. (laughs) I was hoping you'd say something like I look at a law firm in London and not like I work for my pastor who's next to me or something, you know. Um, Yeah, I mean, man, do I get that. I mean, black hole of need with pastoring, like you're never done. There's never, so if you don't put healthy boundaries, there are no boundaries. You just get sucked into wonderful, lovely people and, and need, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's the, again, I, I would have to ask questions, but I think there, there, are two, there are two possible scenarios. One is the Paul to slaves scenario, where Paul writes to those, I've been thinking about this a lot with people that are in work cultures that are caustic um, or that are ethically dubious, because so much of the globalized world, we deal a lot in Portland, people don't feel like they're, they don't feel comfortable ethically with their jobs. It's not like they're lying or whatever. What their work is is, is troublesome. One option is you take Paul's kind of thing to if you can win your freedom, do it, and if not, okay. Because the reality is it, it's, a, it's a function of privilege to be able to say, I don't wanna do this job. I'd rather do one that is more with my ideals or my flow of life or my ethics. It takes an enormous amount of privilege to be able to have that kind yeah. of mobility. Yeah. So I think if you have that level of privilege, take it. Do something else. Quit your job, do something else, change your role, whatever. And if not, God will be gracious to you and just trust. The other option is the Daniel option that's probably more helpful for you in a pastoral situation. Daniel went into a situation that he couldn't get out of. He was brought into exile and he just with grace and a polite heart basically said, I'm not gonna do it how everybody else does it. Would you test me? Would you give me a chance to do it differently in line with the way of God and see if it works better or worse. And shocker, it worked way better. So what I've done in my own pastoring is just choose to not meet everyone's expectations and not meet a lot of people's expectations with as much humility and grace and politeness as I can muster and just say, would you let time be the test of whether or not I'm actually more impactful and fruitful and helpful to our church by doing it in a way that I think is integritous and honoring to God and to my own body than by doing it how everybody else does it and wants me to do it. And my experience has been that our church is a thousand times healthier even as I'm working less hours, doing less things, making more people who email me a little bit grumpy once in a while. And as long as you can approach it with healthy expectations and um, clear communication and honesty and humility, people have been incredibly gracious And my experience is that our church is far healthier now than it was five years ago when I was working my tail off and exhausted all the time and answering every email and easy to get a hold of and meeting with everybody. Our church is so much healthier now, I think. And that's not to cause and effect just because I've slowed down, but I think that's a part of it. Yeah, thank you. Great. Um, Tim, I think we'll be done. How do I just, should I just send them off? Yep. They're already leaving, so that's great. You know, you know you've lost the crowd when they're literally walking away. Love to you all. Have a wonderful night. I'll see you. I'll see you tonight. Oh.